It's 8 o'clock, so we'll begin. Uh, good morning. You all made it from last night. I see that nobody was left behind in prison. Um, this is <coughs> Military History Museum's more relevant than ever. Uh, unfortunately, uh, our third panelist, because of the eccentricities of the Army Museum system, uh, could not uh, secure funding to make it. So Francois, unfortunately, will not be here. But I'm joined, I'm Mark Blackburn. I'm the chair of the Military History Affinity Committee of AASLH. And I'm joined, <coughs> excuse me, by Matt Cassidy of the Minnesota Historical Society and Mark Sunlove of uh, the Soldiers Memorial in St. Louis. Uh, the because we're, we're missing one of our panelists, there'll be plenty of times uh, for questions and dialogue. We're here because we're, we're passionate about this topic. And uh, <coughs> I'll start just with a few remarks and we'll let the, the panelists introduce themselves. Because I work for the National Park Service, I wanna start by saying these views are my own they do not represent the Department of Interior or the National Park Service. But good morning. So Philadelphia is important to me because 32 years ago, in January of 1986, I started in a master's and then a PhD program at Temple University, which is just whatever direction it is, down th this way, uh, down the street. And in 1987, I joined the Park Service in my first seasonal stint at Independence National Historical Park, again, just down the street. And lo and behold, some 30 years later, uh, I find that my two interests continue to uh, be in sync with each other. Because of the academic job market, I never became an academic but instead I went into public service and that I got my first permanent position with the National Park Service 25 years ago. This is my 25th year. And I don't work at a Civil War battlefield. I work at Mount Rainier National Park in Western Washington where I'm the, uh, the West District Ranger. I manage visitor operations on the west side of Mount Rainier, which, get, which it actually does have a teeny bit of military history associated with it but my concerns are the nearly two million visitors that we have to wrangle uh, every year. So the visitor season is coming to an end, so I'm, I'm very, very happy. Um, my uh, graduate advisor was the late Russell F. Wigley, who was a stalwart in, in, in many sense, defining the parameters of the modern field of American military history. And I would say with my, uh, with my ties both to the academic field and to the National Park Service, when I think about it, the notion of relevance and military history, not only to the public within the confines of the National Park Service, but also within the field of academia, the notion of relevancy of this field has been a discussion as long as I have been uh, associated with this field. Uh, I brought my folder of articles. This alone is from academic journals starting 
in 1984 and continuing to the present day with the academic community struggling with shrinking in, in the field, trying to understand that this field in, in, in some circles is considered old-fashioned and perhaps irrelevant. Uh, I would counter that's far from the truth. When we think of our most recent past and being in Philadelphia, when we think of our, our far past, the United States, by its definition, is a country that was born of war. It was born of conflict. It was born of an act of violence. This has been interwoven with our national identity for over 200 years, and I would argue it has been part of, uh, of the, the fabric of our country <laughs> since uh, the English colonization, and perhaps you can even make uh, an argument for Spanish colonization. Much like in the academic field, military history uh, in the broadest sense has continued to evolve. It's taken on a more international approach and with the new social history that began in the 1960s and 70s, the field has continued to blend itself. And it's more than just drums and trumpets, it's more than operational history. Every aspect of the modern aspect of the academic field that we can think of have blended with military history, from gender studies to uh, more recently environmental history. And then, of course, when you think of what's in our headlines today, these topics are still uh, relevant to us. They're relevant to the public. And I say that it's our obligation, both as professionals and I'll say even from a moral stand standpoint, to uh, evolve along with this field. In the Park Service, if we're irrelevant, then we will cease to exist. We are a public organization that depends upon uh, us blending our stories with the interests of our visitors. And if the interests of our visitors change, then we have to change along with it. Uh, the Park Service has had its own challenges with change, and, and I, I admit that. But regardless, bottom line, this field is as relevant now as it ever has been and it's much more than the public perceives it to be. So hopefully, through the lens of these two institutions, we'll be able to see that and perhaps have a discussion uh, uh, before the end of the hour. Yeah. So let me turn over uh, the, the podium to Matt. Good morning, everyone. Um, thank you very much, Mark, for that um, very kind and uh, I think very timely introduction. I think that there, oh, that's the chance. Just a uh, talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> hey, there we go. Uh, so, <coughs> yes, thank you, Mark, for uh, inviting me to be a part of this conversation. Thank you all for coming this morning. Um, 
I've been known in the past to sleep through the 8 a.m. class, so I'm glad you all made it uh, this morning. And I, I really appreciated what uh, Mark said about the changing of perception of military history. Um, and that's what I'm hoping to provide this morning is just a, an example of how uh, my home organization, the Minnesota Historical Society, is trying to do that through one of our premier historic sites, Historic Fort Snelling. Um, have, are, are any of you familiar with it? Have any of you visited the site before? Okay. Yeah, I know, Adam, you are. <laughs> I would hope so. Um, so I wanted to begin by um, There we are. Okay. I want to begin by just providing a little bit of uh, context. So uh, for myself, I started my work at the Minnesota Historical Society at Historic Fort Snelling. I was a frontline interpreter. Uh, then I became the program developer. And uh, now I work for the interpretive programs work team, uh, which works with all of our historic sites. But I can't seem to fully escape the gravitational pull of Historic Fort Snelling. I was most recently working with it on developing an interpretive framework, uh, which we'll get to in a little bit. But I wanted to start uh, geographically, just so um, for those of you who have not been there um, can understand you know, what's the kind of lay of the land for it. Um, it's located at Bedote, which is the Dakota word for the confluence of the Minnesota and the Mississippi rivers, um, which you can see here. Uh, uh, when it was originally built, um, first troops arrived in 1819. Uh, it was constructed over the next five years. Uh, it was a strategic location of the United States to control the, uh, the uh, river crossing here, ma manage the fur trade, um, but also to deter um, the British in Canada, which isn't that far away. So um, the fort itself operated between 1820 and 1946, with the exception of three years uh, prior to the Civil War. And even today, it's still uh, used for reservists. So it's, uh, it has a very long history. Uh, but in the 1950s, there wasn't much left of the original post. You know, uh, the centennial of Minnesota statehood coming up in 1958, there was public interest in restoring the fort. There were only four buildings still standing at that point. So they restored the rest of the fort uh, and it opened as a historic site administered by Minnesota Historical Society in 1970. And uh, here you can see this is kind of the classic image of, of what uh, historic Fort Snelling has been for decades. So it was the first national historic landmark in Minnesota. And as I mentioned, it was also opened as a historic site officially in 1970. Uh, the goal for the site was basically as they put it, to be the Colonial Williamsburg of Minnesota. Uh, the hope was to create an immersive living history program that utilized first-person interpretations, so if people were stepping back in time, and they would recreate life at a U.S. military post in the early 19th century. Uh, the setting for the program was the summer of 1827. If you talk to any of the veteran interpreters, they talk about it, it's the never-ending year. This is always 1827. Uh, and they tried to follow um, whatever, say you arrive in a day in June, they tried to follow what was happening that day uh, in 1827. We were fortunate to have the diary of the Indian agent Lawrence Tolliver, who
who was in the area, and he took meticulous notes and so tried very to, to mirror that very closely. Um, however, uh, there were limitations with this type of interpretation, um, which uh, shouldn't surprise anyone. They didn't talk about anything post-1827. Um, or if they did, it was uh, very cursory. Um, again, because if they're in character and they are trying to create an immersive environment, then getting beyond that uh, post-1827 just didn't make sense. Um, they adopted uh, a new type of interpretation, modified first person, uh, or my time, your time, uh, in order to kind of address some of these issues because guests were asking questions beyond the scope of the original program. Um, but it was still um, very much set in uh, a very particular time, very particular place. Uh, visually, the site was reconstructed to the way it looked in the 1820s. So um, as a colleague of mine put it, it says you have a unchanging stage set, which uh, can make it very challenging to interpret beyond that narrow uh, time frame. Um, and as far as interpretation of subjects beyond just the, the life of soldiers, civilians that were in the, the post, uh, it was marginal at best. So for example, African-American history or the history of enslavement um, or uh, Dakota U.S. government relations. Um, it, was, it was touched on here and there, um, unfortunately often by accident, um, so, but it was not a deliberate interpretive element in the program. Now, as time went on from about the 1990s through the 2000s, through we started to experience things that you know many museums did, which was decline in attendance. Audiences were changing. They were interested in different things. They wanted to hear uh, or have different experiences, hear different stories. But we were also facing criticism from uh, different corners, uh, in particular uh, Dakota activists and their allies that were uh, challenging the Minnesota Historical Society for not interpreting a more inclusive narrative, for um, not intentionally interpreting things like the U.S.-Dakota War of 1862, um, the genocide of Dakota people. So uh, there was a lot of attention given to that. And so starting in 2006, uh, the society began uh, basically a decade of, ins of incremental change. So we saw uh, the site change its space interpretive program from first person to third person. It was still a costumed living history program, but no one was in character anymore. <laughs> just speaking as you and I would. Um, they also expanded the military history. We intentionally started to get outside of the 1820s uh, with special events on weekends, such as Civil War weekend, World War I, World War II weekend, things like that, and programs like that had existed before, but they were always outside the fort walls um, to kind of separate from that immersive environment, that immersive experience. Well, uh, starting in 2007, uh, all of those programs were brought inside the walls, um, and that stage set uh, was considered just part of the, the, the fabric of the site. It wasn't um, a constraint anymore on what we could do inside programmatically. Uh, also, trying to include very intentionally the stories of enslaved people 
at the port, specifically Dred and Harriet Scott, who lived there for four years. Um, and making that a, a, a standard, uh, not standard, but a, um, yes, a standard part of the school program. Every school child went through and learned that history. Um, and then a, a real turning point for us was in 2011 when we joined the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience. Um, initially, we didn't really do much as far as their methodology of interpretation, but um, as the decade went on, we started to experiment more and more with uh, dialogic interpretation, um, being uh, open and honest about the, uh, the really uh, challenging parts of the site's history. So that was kind of a, a watershed moment for us. And then in 2018, we embarked on what I believe was the first over, yeah, it was the first overhaul of the Daily Corps program. This was part of a revitalization effort by the Minnesota Historical Society, um, looking toward the 200th anniversary, which will be next year, of the laying of the cornerstone of Fort Snelling in 1820. So looking ahead, we were challenged to think, how do we make this story here, this history of this place more relevant um, to our audiences today? And so we took a comprehensive look at the daily program and decided that um, we would no longer do a moment in time, kind of you know, coming in and this is what it was like in 1827. We decided that we wanted to have a variety of content, a variety of experiences for people, covering a much wider range of the site's history. And just uh, to point out, that was a change too in the philosophy and the mindset of people is that for so long, Historic Fort Snelling, the reconstructed fort, had been conflated as the historic site. Um, but the site itself is uh, 26 acres um, that encompass land that is part of that Bedote landscape. So the challenge to shift our thoughts away from, a good example is to refer to the place in shorthand as the fort, and we're challenging ourselves to refer to it now as the site. Understanding that the fort is an important part of it, but it's not the complete story because there's at least 11,000 years of history encompassed in this particular location. Um, so we set ourselves a goal, uh, three main goals for the revitalization program. One was we wanted to present multiple perspectives over multiple historic eras. We wanted to employ multiple methods of engagement, not just the living history program, but uh, tours, um, exhibits, guided um, experiences, facilitated experiences, things like that. Um, understanding that our audiences have multiple motivations, they have multiple learning styles, things like that. And then we wanted to be very intentionally help our guests connect the past to the present. Um, that strong effort toward uh, relevance because uh, if people had made those connections, you know, in the past, often it was by accident. Um, but that became one of our driving forces um, for this revitalization. And uh, just very briefly, we did some evaluation. And these are some highlights of the program change. There were a lot of people very nervous, uh, very concerned, like, well, we've been doing this particular experience for almost you know, 40 years. What are people going to think? And we used as a baseline a guest survey in 2017. And so to compare to this year, um, after the program change, 
uh, we saw some pretty significant jumps in uh, net promoter score, which uh, if, if you're not familiar is basically, you know, would people recommend us to friends and family? So pretty significant jump there. Uh, but then the, uh, the other really significant one is uh, the relevance of content and programs to their own lives today, which uh, was, was a really pleasant surprise. Um, and to uh, kind of one of the really big pieces here was the interest in history before the visit compared to afterwards. So the way this question was asked is um, it was comparative how interested were you in history before you visited compared to how many or how interested are you afterward. And we saw a jump from 76% of people in 2017 expressed uh, an increase in their interest in history to 95% last year. This is out of a representative sampling of uh, 348. So um, that made the board happy, uh, made our interpreters happy. Uh, we really felt uh, that we were going in a positive direction. So based on that, we have created an interpretive framework which kind of codifies and solidifies the changes we made, our aspirations uh, for the site, and is, it's going to be used as a roadmap to direct our interpretive efforts moving forward um, post-reopen after the revitalization. Um, one of the changes that we also made um, in 2018 was to add at Bedote to our signage um, to acknowledge the presence um, prior to the fort of uh, indigenous people. And uh, some of you may be familiar that this has become quite a lightning rod um, for us, uh, the being accused of changing the name without going through the legislative process, um, which is, our understanding is this is a clarifying statement uh, and, and acknowledging um, the site itself rather than just the fort and, and acknowledging that history. So um, keep your eye on the news. It'll be interesting to see how this goes over the, the next couple of months. We've entered into a public naming process, um, trying to collect input from uh, people statewide. So, um, so where do we go from here? Well, uh, as I said, we're going to be opening a revitalized site uh, with a new visitor center museum uh, in 2021, and using that interpretive framework and our philosophy with the <coughs> International Coalition of Sites of Conscience, we're going to move forward. We're going to continue to uh, help make people feel that relevance, uh, connect with this history, expand and change people's perceptions of what military history really is. And I was so glad you mentioned earlier about the blending of all these different disciplines within history. Um, because, you know, again, it's not just drums and bugles. Um, so, uh, thank you very much. I'm sure I went over my time, but um, appreciate it very much. And I'll turn it over to our, our next speaker. Thank you.
promise you that's not my first slide. Laid plans. Maybe we might be past that point. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Good morning. Um, I'm Mark Sundlub. I'm the director of the Soldiers Memorial Military Museum, which is in downtown St. Louis. Uh, has anybody been there or been to St. Louis? All right. Oh, look at that. Right on. <laughs> Good. Let's see. Uh, the look. I love that we had the. Same first slide, by the way, Matt, the, old, the overview. Um, but there uh, is Soldier's Memorial. Here's the, uh, the gateway arch is here. This is a, uh, kind of a nice garden, uh, huge block. Um, the city garden is here, big plaza. There's even a memorial plaza where Soldier's Memorial is located. But it's right in the heart of downtown with a Bush Stadium and the, the Enterprise Center there where they play some hockey. Um, but it's, a, it's an exciting time in St. Louis. Um, there's a lot of um, rebirth in the downtown area. The, uh, the Arch Museum just underwent a $40 million, $400 million renovation, uh, which completely kind of changed the face of the, the Gateway Arch, which is run by the National Park Service. Um, the uh, Bush Stadium is relatively new. Um, they just put the Enterprise Center under some renovations. So there's this kind of rebirth uh, happening in, in St. Louis. For Soldiers Memorial specifically, uh, it was built and opened in 1938. And for 80 years, it was owned and operated by the city of St. Louis. It was, both, it was built both as a memorial uh, to the men and women who'd given their lives in World War I and also as a museum for which they were going to basically house the relics and the war trophies that had come back from the Great War. Um, but, uh, the city, um, while they did their best, they basically did not have the resources to manage neither the facility really or the 
the collection, especially in the, in the way that we manage the museum collections today with the, the, the high level of conservation and care that we put into these, um, into these collections. So they operated it until about 2015, uh, which at the time, uh, it had really reached kind of a, a tough state. And a, a private donor stepped in and said that if the city could come to an agreement with the Missouri Historical Society, whereby the city would continue to own and operate, uh, or the city would continue to own the land, the buildings, and the collections, uh, the Missouri Historical Society would operate all of that. Uh, this donor would donate three, $30 million for a complete renovation of the facility. Um, so the city and the Missouri Historical Society found themselves uh, to an agreement. Um, in, in 2016, uh, renovations of Soldiers Memorial began, and it really kind of changed the face of the memorial. It changed the face of a, a block called the Court of Honor, uh, which was uh, built after the original memorial. I'll get into that later. Um, and it really uh, drastically uh, was a, a significant step towards saving the historic collection which had uh, accumulated at the memorial over the previous 80 years. Um, so the Missouri Historical Society assumed operations in 2016, uh, basically promptly closed the site and, and began this $30 million renovation. Um, emptied the building of all the collections, uh, improved and enhanced the facility with a special <coughs> emphasis on accessibility features. Um, and then in, in November of 2018, we reopened uh, the memorial with brand new exhibits, new, obviously new interpretation, new, everything new, basically. Um, so I'm gonna walk you through um, some of uh, those changes to the exhibits and how we, um, attempted to make the site uh, more relevant uh, to our focus audience, which is essentially the people of St. Louis, and especially that, that kind of region of St. that St. Louis region. This is kind of an overview of that, those two city blocks. You can see to the, on top there is the memorial itself, that's to the north, and then the block to the south is this uh, court of honor, uh, which the memorial was built and opened, like I said, in 1938 uh, as a tribute to uh, uh, World War One. Following World War II in 1948, uh, they established this Court of Honor to the South, which primar primarily at the time contained a, a, a wall listing the, m the men and women of St. Louis, St. Louis City, County, and a little bit of the region who had given their lives in World War II. Um, Later, in 1979, uh, they added additional memorials to uh, that court of honor to include uh, the men and women of, uh, who had given their lives in, in Korea and also in Vietnam. So the, this is all to say that um, the, the site here is both this kind of purpose-built museum, but also has a very strong memorial role as well. I'm not a marketing or an advertising guy, but I really like our tagline because it's worked really well for us in a lot of different ways. Uh, find yourself here. Um, both it, it carries this kind of command to, to come and attend the museum. <laughs> but also, more importantly, especially from the exhibit perspective, when people enter the galleries, we really want them to see themselves in their community 
inside the galleries, and I'll, I'll get to that in a little bit. Get, but this whole idea that there's this kind of reflection as you, as you walk in, it, you're not just hearing somebody else's story, but you're hearing, you're finding your, your own story, your, your own neighborhood story, or your community story within this larger military history. You can see the building there. Uh, this is the uh, basically the the main level. Um, these very tall, 20-foot windows, and there's two kind of halves of this building. It's basically symmetrical. One is the east gallery, one is the west gallery. It houses an exhibit called St. Louis and Service, which covers St. Louis's role um, in conflict from the Revolutionary War all the way through today, uh, with the conflicts in the in the Middle East. One half covers the Revolutionary War through World War I, and then as guests walk across the, the open loggia area, they enter the second gallery, which uh, covers um, World War II through today. That top floor, this smaller floor, houses uh, both uh, meeting rooms, some classrooms, offices, and a large assembly hall. And I'll talk a little bit about that, why that's important in a, in a second. This is uh, looking from the memorial south towards that uh, court of honor. Uh, so this long wall here is the wall that has the, the original wall, <coughs> the original intent of that court of honor, which, which holds the names of those men and women of World War II. Uh, and then to the side on the far uh, left there is the uh, two memorials to both Korea and to Vietnam. And to uh, this side here, during the, the this underwent some pretty dramatic changes during the restoration in the last three years. We added three um, uh, uh, memorials that today are they're basically blank slabs of marble, um, and we are in the process of adding uh, 554 names uh, to those of men and women who have given their lives in service from the St. Louis region since Vietnam. Uh, so. Again, kind of adding that, continuing that memorial aspect and certainly adding to the relevance of the site to uh, the families, the friends of, of these service members. And that right there is the Enterprise Center, which is the home of the 2019 NHL <laughs> champion. <laughs> Just if you are wondering. Um, my work with relevance is, uh, I've been, thinking about relevance for, for quite a while. I wrote a technical leaflet for AESLH a few years back. Um, and it's, for me, it's always been a, a pretty significant mental uh, hurdle. It's uh, extremely challenging, I think, to try to define relevance. Relevance essentially means a lot of things to, to everybody. And even in your own lives, I think you'll see that some things while relevant to you in, in your professional life, carry little relevance to you in your personal life and, and vice versa. If you're a parent, things are relevant to you that, you know, that won't be relevant to non-parents and have nothing to do. So there's all these different ways and approaches to relevance. For us, I think, again, this find yourself here was certainly uh, critical when we were looking at how is this, how are these galleries going to be relevant to the people of St. Louis? And when I say St. Louis, again, I mean the region. Um, how are these galleries going to be relevant to these folks? Um, and we really wanted to tell all the stories of conflict, which include 
you know, what people were doing on the home front, what happened to industry in, in factories in St. Louis during different conflicts. Of course, the military story, what happened to men and women in service. Um, and again, we wanted, to, we wanted to tell the large national story with the units and the generals and the troop movements, but we wanted to do all of that through a very kind of individualized St. Louis lens, uh, a focus on what individuals experienced, uh, not so much the large armies and the large troops, but from a very individual uh, level. And when I think about relevance, um, I tend to lean towards uh, John Falk and his identity in the museum visitor experience. Um, and if you haven't read this, I obviously recommend it, but it helps us understand our audience, not from a demographic perspective, but, but from an identity perspective and how people kind of see themselves and see what they uh, are aiming towards and what their goals are when they go to, go to a museum or, or to a historic site. And uh, I think using these is what's helped me and helped us kind of define our goals and what we want people to be able to achieve when they come here. So Falk uh, talks about explorers. These are your, what I call the label readers. These are your truly curious learners who want to come in and, and learn more about something that they don't already know about. Uh, these, uh, you know, these folks are kind of what you might think of as the stereotype or what we we tend to think of as a stereotypical museum goer, but they're actually not all that. Uh, there's a lot, lot of other folks as well. Another group that Falk talks about is the facilitators. These are people who, uh, who are basically, they're going to a museum. I mean, I think you've all done this. I certainly do it all the time with my family, with my mother, and we, we go to these places, and while I love museums, and I, I love to learn, um, a lot of times we're just going because we need a family event to go to. We need a nice place to go to. We need a, a place to kind of share time together and build relationships. You see this a lot with uh, veterans coming into the building, descendants of those who are memorialized um, on the memorials. Uh, they're coming to kind of bridge the generation, so to speak. So you'll see grandparents come with their grandchildren and they'll, sh they'll, they'll go through the galleries and you can see this kind of family relationship built within the galleries themselves. Um, so it's a, a pretty special thing to see that happen. Then you have your experience seekers. Um, these are folks who, you know, they're the tourists. They're the folks who want to come to Soldiers Memorial because they knew it, it had been there for 80 years. Uh, they knew it had reached a pretty tough state. They knew we put it through a, a rather extensive renovation, and now they want to come back and they want to see it. They're almost like your bucket list folks who just, you have to go do that, right? So if you go to St. Louis and you don't go to the Arch, um, people are going to ask you, what were you doing when you were in St. Louis? Right? When you go home, you better say, I went to the Arch. It's one of these kind of experiences um, that you just can't miss. So another one of Falk's uh, five uh, categories. And then, of course, the professionals and the hobbyists. These are the, uh, the veterans, the military historians, the collectors, those folks who are really interested in the guns and gears. Right? So you better have something in the museum that appeases uh, those folks as well, because they are certainly coming. They want to see the, the firearms. They want to see uh, the collections. Um, and then the rechargers. These are folks who uh, they're they might come often. We have a gentleman who who comes during lunch, and he comes and he sits in the court of honor, and he he just relaxes and he he smokes his pipe, and you can kind of see him just recharging and using that space. Um, 
as this kind of quiet, reflective time for him to kind of clear his mind during the middle of the day. And he's not the only one. He's just one example. But to provide that experience uh, is another thing that we're doing at the memorial. And of course, all of that is layered on top of this, uh, this learning and education that's embedded in the museum experience. You don't go to a museum without the expectation uh, that you're going to hopefully learn something, right? The other thing that we uh, did through the renovation was increase accessibility. Um, you know, if, if your building or your, your site is not accessible, it's immediately, no matter what your content is, no matter what your message you're trying to sell, if people can't get into the building or navigate their way around the building due to uh, certain uh, you know, disabilities or, or whatnot, uh, mothers with uh, strollers, but if, they, if people have a hard time moving around, it's, you're not going to be very relevant because they're not going to come. Uh, getting into the galleries, this is as you enter the uh, enter the main gallery. Again, all of these exhibits underwent really uh, extensive renovation. But this is one of the uh, kind of the, the find yourself here moments when you enter. The, you're presented with the bell off the fourth USS St. Louis, and then around the uh, the reader rail there, around this perimeter, is the story of the seven USS St. Louises. So, uh, for our audience. Uh, it sends a message that St. Louis, the name St. Louis, has had a, a global projection since 1828 uh, through the ships uh, that have been named that uh, by the U.S. Navy. Um, so immediately the audience kind of finds some relevance in that and saying, well, I'm St. Louis and I'm proud and, and this is, you know, one symbol that we've done. In the background you can see um, a large case which holds uh, numerous firearms. Again, that's for you know the, the hobbyists, the collectors certainly appreciate that case. You can see the, these uh, individuals, uh, and these are on scrims that are blocking light. One of the issues with the museum prior to the renovation was these huge, uh, like I said, 20-foot windows, which let the sunlight stream in and, mm -hmm. and did a lot of damage to the uh, to the collections that were in there. So, part of our um, storytelling within the exhibits was to add these scrims which are both form and function uh, you can see little Jimmy Johnston here who at six years old was a powder monkey on a gunboat uh, he uh, him and his mother uh, were visiting his father on a gunboat during the Civil War uh, and uh, they came under attack by the uh, Confederate forces and uh, Jimmy, at just six years old, ended up running powder back and forth uh, up to the gun crews as they were uh, trying to protect the ship. And then on the other side is uh, James Canford, who um, is from the Gates neighborhood in St. Louis. One thing about St. Louis is that they love their neighborhoods. Um, and so including things like that in the text uh, that, that James was from the, the Gates neighborhood, again, draws that connection and helps people find themselves uh, in the building. But uh, James was uh, ready to go off to World War I, um, never actually made it. He contracted influenza uh, and died uh, in the U.S. before being shipped abroad. Um, so, and again, these stories like James who, you know, didn't achieve the, the glory and fame of the great generals, um, but certainly was an important St. Louisan who, who gave his life uh, in, the, in service um, and came from a special St. Louis neighborhood. This is one of my favorite areas in the gallery, and 
I know Mike, my military and firearms curator, has heard me give this spiel numerous times. But I, in terms of relevance, um, I like this photo for a lot of different reasons. One is you see this turret. This is off the uh, nose turret of a B-24 uh, bomber. And uh, that, uh, that turret, uh, turret, again, appeals to the specialists, the hobbyists who want to see the, the equipment and understand the equipment better. But then if you look above them, this is an, another form and function thing. This is a large uh, acoustical panel on this wall. The space is just kind of cavernous, so we needed to do something. So this is an image um, of primarily women uh, working on the assembly line in, at the Emerson factory in St. Louis, assembling these, uh, these turrets uh, that which were being incorporated into the planes that were going off to, to fight in the war. And you'll notice that all of these workers, a little hard to see in this photo, but all of the workers in this image, image are white. Um, where the photographer for this photo is standing directly behind him or her is a large panel that uh, has a photograph of the uh, labor uh, strife that was happening because of the d discriminatory hiring practices in these St. Louis factories during World War II, whereby they were only hiring uh, white individuals um, and that opportunity was not open to the to the African Americans of St. Louis, so they, in in response to that, launched basically a protest and and did some strikes and um, tried to to change that. So yeah. right in this kind of stretch, you have these three kind of different stories that that are going to appeal to a large uh, array of audiences, whether it's individuals who remember the factories and, and their grandmothers and going off to work in the factories or the, the service members who were uh, controlling these these bombers over Europe and the Pacific. Um, and then, of course, behind us, the African-Americans who were fighting at the same time at home to try to uh, to win some, some freedoms here. Um, this is a, another photo of the exhibit. Um, this is our friend Marvin, Matt. Um, yeah, so uh, he, uh, Marvin, of course, we're doing lots of education and youth programs, uh, as you all are doing, I'm sure, at your, your places as well. But again, trying to create relevance for teachers, um, homeschooled kids who can come in and, and have an educational experience. And again, a lot of this is very exciting because for you know, decades, uh, the city couldn't support this level of education and opportunity at the memorial. Uh, this is one of my favorite parts of the, the of the gallery. You can see these images on the wall. These are actually video screens, and they rotate images of St. Louis and St. Louisans in service, uh, and men and women who uh, have given their lives or or have just served. Um, at one time or another, uh, so you can see they're stretching all the way through the, uh, the different decades and time areas. These uh, little panels here uh, are interactive kiosks whereby you can search for individuals um, by address and by neighborhood um, and find them. Um, so, you know, if you're from the Lafayette Square neighborhood like myself, I can go in there and I can see the individuals who have served or given their lives in service. So again, drawing that very personal connection. And when we established those, those kiosks, our archivists worked very hard to, to 
there's another one of these kiosks that's just for the outdoor memorials, which are just names on a wall until you dig deeper. In one of these kiosks, you can find the names of those individuals, but then you can dig deep and you can find the names of their parents and if they were married and what their jobs were before they, before they shipped off to, to the war. Um, so you get this kind of, you take this name off of, off of a memorial and you start to really establish an identity for these individuals, which again, uh, we think establishes more relevance and understanding. This is a uh, uh, section of the exhibit that looks at the American Legion. Of course, in 1919, the Legion met in St. Louis uh, and established their constitution. So St. Louis has always had a very strong American Legion presence. Um, this is Joe Franks. He's the national commander um, of the Legion, or, or he was, um, and a local St. Louisan. Um, but uh, telling that story more, and the Legion, for us, uh, particularly the Amer American Legion, but not just the American Legion, we have um, established very close relationships with. Uh, when they actually, when they were developing and building the mo memorial back in the 30s, the Legion had developed a committee that kind of guided the architects and guided the city in its development. And one thing that the Legion wanted way back then was that this be a, an active place, a place where veterans could come and it was meaningful to them. It wasn't just a a purpose-built museum, but it was actually a space that was functional and that could be practical for them and meet their needs. Um, and that's something that we're really uh, proud to continue on today. Uh, we work with the Legion on flag raisings, Memorial Day, Veteran Day events, um, Flag Day events, um, all, all kinds of different things. Um, and then those meeting rooms, which I told you up on the second floor, we have some classrooms and we have a large assembly hall. So it's not only the veteran service organizations that we work with, but it's also the active military. And the assembly hall, we're really proud to open that up for free to uh, active military units who want to use it for military retirements, promotion ceremonies, change of command ceremonies. Uh, so we have probably at least every other week, there's, there's one of those types of events happening at the memorial. So again, creating uh, relevance uh, at the space for those folks as well. This is the, uh, the outdoors. Now you're in that kind of loggia area, which if you remember from the original photo, and this is the, uh, the cenotaph, which was the heart of the original purpose of the memorial. And now this cenotaph uh, holds, which is in, uh, basically an empty tomb, holds the names of the 1,075 St. Louisans who gave their lives in World War I. So again, the kind of the heart or the original intent of the memorial, which gradually grew. Uh, the the building was flanked by these four Walker Hancock statues, and if you're Walker Hancock was, was both a, a, a sculptor, but also one of the monuments men uh, from World War II. Um, so we were able to kind of tell his story, but then also these four statues, uh, which represent uh, courage, loyalty, sacrifice, and vision. And here you're seeing the, uh, the sacrifice, which is this woman holding a baby which to Walker Hancock was really the ultimate symbol of sacrificing what we sacrifice when we go to war, and that is um, you know, our youth and our, our, our children of the nation that we lose. Um, and that's, a, that's interesting in a lot of different ways, but one way is that it, it's also a space that we have the internal exhibits, but then the memorial itself to understand memorial as a memorial 
is meaningful and uh, just got a, another contact with the school who's going to bring down 90 freshmen and they're going to look at the memorial not at the exhibits but actually at the memorial itself and what does it mean to build memorials and what does the different symbols and memorials mean and, and how that all comes together so another way to to make the uh, the space relevant beyond just the exhibits and that's just a pretty picture of the memorial <laughs> night <laughs> One thing we were happy to do was include these water features into the Court of Honor. This Now you're standing in the Court of Honor looking back at the memorial, but the, the original architects uh, in the 40s would have loved to have had water features um, inside that Court of Honor, but the money wasn't there at the time. So during the renovation, we were able to add those <coughs> with actually the grandson of the original um, architect. Um, we were able to add these water features, so we were pretty, pretty happy about that. That's a portion of that original World War II memorial, um, looking back at the building. There's another Hillis Arnold uh, uh, sculpture that was uh, put in the uh, Court of Honor in 1945. Um, and that's all I have. Um, Mark, do you want to open it up to questions? So these two presentations touched on many different topics, the challenges of living history um, in the spirit of yesterday, recognizing that the truth is the truth, um, visitor needs, the importance of social science and the work that we do, uh, multiple perspectives and learning styles, the, the blending and the tension between history, memory, and co commemoration, the notion that all history is local, uh, We've spoken a lot about relevance, and uh, thank you for talking about accessibility. Uh, we never realized, but as a public in public institutions, uh, you are all legally bound by the Americans with Accessibility Act, and I can attest to what the Park Service has gone through. Uh, there's legal ramifications if you do renovations without attending to accessibility. So there's a host of topics, so we can open the floor for questions, dialogue, discussions. Yes, sir. Yeah, just, uh, just I'll add to that a little bit. Of the, uh, the, the accessibility at Soldiers Memorial, of course, it was built in 38, so a lot of those features weren't there. The city did add a ramp um, to the, it's hard to explain without having seen it, but basically to what is kind of generally considered the, the back side of the building. And uh, so during the renovations, uh, we established a, an accessibility committee that was, we had veterans on there, we had, had other folks from the community, 
and that was certainly um, the the thought that a, a veteran or disabled veteran um, had to enter the building uh, through the the rear essentially was was highly unacceptable. So during the renovations, we added a second ramp uh, that which which was wider, had a gradual a more gradual incline, and enabled uh, everybody to enter through what is generally considered the front of the building. Um, so yeah, it was. Um, it was insulting uh, to everybody, uh, but the idea that a veteran couldn't enter the a disabled veteran couldn't enter the building through the front was a, a really a, a deep insult. Uh, so we were able to, to change that. Uh, it's we use the metropolitan statistical area, which is includes about eight counties in Illinois and then eight counties over in Missouri, and then the uh, St. Louis city itself. Um, I, I can start with that. Um, I think for the Missouri Historical Society, which to clarify um, is not the State Historical Society of Missouri, which is a separate organization. The Missouri Historical Society has a St. Louis focus. Uh, so just to clarify that that piece of the, the kind of complicated puzzle. But I think for for the Missouri Historical Society, Soldiers has kind of become its primary face or, or avenue of uh, sharing and dealing with military history. And I think while we have had discussions um, as to how the, the Missouri History Museum, which is a separate museum and kind of the, the main museum, you could say, um, we are kind of currently in discussions as to how or if that museum would ever host a you know a military centered um, exhibit or if that activity would take place solely at soldiers memorial and i would say that i think th at this point in discussions i think you know soldiers memorial is a is a very useful kind of tool or a resource for the his the missouri historical society to share that military history story and 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 those related stories as well so Thank you. Um, just to uh, reiterate the question they asked us to re repeat them. So uh, Adam, just to make sure I understand is, you know, how does the larger institution 
address the the subject area of military history and its interpretation. So, um, from from where you know from where I'm sitting within the Minnesota Historical Society, there isn't uh, an overarching institutional uh, interpretation for military history. Um, Fort Snelling really kind of was that and the Minnesota History Center with its exhibits, those were the two places where you could um, get military history interpretation. Um, part of what we're doing um, as an organization is, you know, we're going through this uh, defining period of, you know, strategic priorities and part of that is figuring out who we are as an institution, uh, what are our, our values, kind of re-examining all these, um, these core philosophies. Um, and within that, there's also the effort at understanding what do we mean when we interpret, you know, what's it for, um, who is it for, what is our end goal. So I think that hopefully what will come out of that process is an understanding of what do we want to accomplish through interpretation. And then uh, our sites and museums can look at that and use that as a way to uh, figure out how to translate that on the ground at their locations. So, but right now, there, there really isn't an overarching uh, understanding of how do we interpret military history. For the National Park Service, there's, keep in mind, there are 419 units in the National Park Service. There, <coughs> the National Park Service has a presence in every state in the Union. Recently, there was no unit in Delaware, but that's changed. Uh, and there are no national thematic uh, uh, frameworks for military history. Uh, each park goes through a collaborative process to create what's called a foundation document. And within that foundation document are the themes tied to those particular resources. Uh, the, the, because it's a collaborative process and because it involves partners, uh, the park I used to work at before Mount Rainier was Nez Perce National Historical Park. And uh, when we re-embarked to change the interpretive themes of the park, we, uh, and of course we invited the, the, the tribe we recognized uh, many topics that we would not have when the park was created in 1965. When you read the enabling legislation for Nez Perce, the story of the Nez Perce is almost listed as an afterthought <laughs> in the enabling legislation. Uh, but instead, we've recognized the deep historical trauma of the results of, for example, the 1877 so-called war with the Nez Perce uh, and uh, we surrendered most of our storytelling authority to the tribe so their story could be told in a truthful and authentic manner. Uh, but we are a national organization. Each park is governed by people. People are flawed <laughs> and uh, there are uh, changes, different emphases whenever there's a change in su a superintendent. So it's sometimes it's a challenge to, 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 to keep relevant and to follow historical trends, but having been in this with this department for 25 years, I've seen us on a whole make leaps and bounds in terms of how we tell our stories. From Manzanar to the recent addition of uh, the Manhattan Project National Historical Park, which includes B Reactor and my home state of, 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 of uh, Washington. These are difficult topics, 
uh, we've, I, I would like to think that we've moved past uh, the celebratory myths of American history and gotten into the down and dirty details of who we are. But it is uh, applied unevenly throughout the service. I saw someone shake their head, so I certainly recognize that. Um, go ahead. You know, uh, just to add to that, um, taking, you know, at, at historic Fort Snelling, for example, taking um, the, the story of the military establishing itself there and connecting it to other stories such as the story of Dred and Harriet um, and other enslaved people because the U.S. military was the driving force behind bringing uh, chattel slavery to Minnesota. And uh, so connect, finding those connections with other threads, with other stories, um, we have found, uh, we've been accused of diluting <laughs> the, the military history of the, of the site, um, but my argument has always been, no, we're expanding it. Actually, what you're seeing is you're seeing this, uh, the in military history interpretation grow at the site. So um, again, like you said, it, it's, it's a flawed process. It's not perfect. You know, we're partnering with community groups, but um, again, I, I feel, and I think our, the numbers from our survey uh, bore it out that people are connecting better with that story. Um, I, I can't speak too much to it. I, I understand um, most of them, at least the ones that have been most vocal about it and have gotten in front of legislators, have you know written in the newspaper, things like that. Um, their concerns have been that, again, that the military history of the site is, is being diminished. Um, they feel that there's been criticism of our historic methodology um, criticizing how we have interpreted things and uh, you know it's that's fine you can feel that way um, but here is you know we, we're making a real strong effort at trying to make sure we have all the documentation all the things we can share um, and you know it's also a challenge because we are trying to as Mark said seed authority um, we've been working with uh, a group the Dakota Community Council on reinterpreting uh, the landscape and their connection to the place because again, you know Fort Snelling was there for less than 200 years and their history at the site goes back 11,000 so um, Their focus uh, this particular group of people for them the historic site is the fort and the fort is the historic site and our argument is that no the site of the junction of the rivers is the site now let's look at the whole history there, and there it's just it's it's their identity, you know, and, and it's challenging what they have accepted. That's you know that's not unique to us at all. Have anything to add? Or? Like, 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 genocide history museum, like, you can 
incorporating more social issues and more transition interpretation, shouldn't those social issues we learn be incorporated into more of a military history into more of their programming as well? And I think back to, we, we never got a chance, I worked for the Washington Yeah, I, I agree 100%, and I think I probably put my answer in two uh, black and white terms, I think. Um, I, I would just, I think what I was trying to say is if we were going to do, if the Missouri Historical Society was going to do, say, a, an exhibit on the Vietnam War, um, it would be most, it, it would be held at the Soldiers Memorial uh, temporary exhibit space, which is a 4,000 square foot space. Uh, the, at the History Museum, um, itself there were uh, w in the next f years here we're undergoing a complete renovation of what we call our core galleries uh, looking at the kind of the st louis by the decades um, and certainly we're telling important stories uh through the decades for, for st louis and those uh, those exhibits will certainly incorporate um you know stories of military history as well um it's but if there was a uh, an exhibit that was focused on, say, a war or, or something of that nature, that would happen at Soldiers. But there are certainly military aspects and military history that will be told at the History Museum, um, just with less of an emphasis or less of a focus. But I agree 100% that that's a, a dangerous uh, road to go down, I would say, to, to separate those and divorce two completely. I think it would be to, to hurt both, uh, both, both places. There were some um, other hands. I, oh, I, I just wanted to add real quick to that. Yes, um, at MNHS, um, it's kind of it's not been a top-down um, directive about integrating. It's been more organic than that. So, uh, for example, the Oliver Kelly Farm, um, they started doing a school program around the Civil War and how it affected agriculture in Minnesota. Um, so the war was talked about, but in this unique lens through farming. Um, same with the uh, historic Forestville, which um, is in the southern part of the state, and they talked about what did uh, the Civil War do to a small community uh, and, and how did it impact them. Um, the Charles Lindbergh House and Museum, they started doing uh, programming around World War I. Um, and they, they, they're trying to get toward, you know, uh, Charles and 
World War II, but uh, it's, it, yeah, it's, <laughs> they, they've done some programs around that and it's been a little, um, they got some pushback on that, but to their credit, um, uh, they are, they're pushing to really explore that history. It's in their exhibit, uh, it's in public programming. So, so it's kind of been organic to see how the um, military history has, has been interpreted at different sites and through those particular lenses, which I think is great because it does sh uh, illustrate to people the breadth of what, you know, what we call military history. It encompasses all of this stuff. So um, just a couple of examples of this more organic development. There was a, yes. So we probably need at least an entire other session <laughs> to, to get into that. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, well, for, first off, I'll, I'll put out there, I, I also do reenacting as, as a hobby, so I have you know, my own particular biases. Um, but I think that, you know, for me, the, the, the presentation of you know, living history and that kind of um, methodology is a wonderful tool for a lot of people. Um, but there are a lot of people where it, it doesn't work, either because it's not something they're interested in or because, to a degree, they're deeply offended by it. I keep thinking about um, back in my home state of Illinois, there was an event um, that this summer was on again, off again, on again, off again because of controversy around, you know, uh, there'd be Confederate reenactors with the battle flag. And it's, it's really tough because I... I don't. I don't think that there is a uh, a one size fits all solution. I really, I, similar to the to the monuments discussion that we're having nationally, I think it is an, it is up to the communities in which these things take place to decide what they how they want to see it represented, and I think it's incumbent on us at museums and historic sites to really. Um, help facilitate that conversation. And um, yeah, it is a, it's a huge challenge. So we should, we should talk and set up a session for next year. <laughs> I made a note of it. Oh, excellent. <laughs> excellent. We have time for one more question. Well, thank you. Uh, oh, there was, there oh, was one. Where, I'm sorry.
another session? Yeah, no. <laughs> oh, do you want to go ahead and answer? Yeah, and I just want to add quickly, I know we're short on time, but um, that very thing you were saying, Jennifer, about reframing and trying to help uh, connect with the issues that are being faced today, part of that is a tenant of the uh, sites of conscience model. But also, uh, that was something that we did, particularly in the historic hospital at Fort Snelling. Uh, we used that as an opportunity to engage people in conversation about the historic treatments, how they evolved over time, tying to modern issues of PTSD um, and then telling people, you know, there are places you can go if you're interested in helping. Um, so trying to make that, that connection between the past, the, the history of this particular location and present day uh, concerns. And to, uh, so far our, our institution has been supportive of what we've been doing. Um, but I, I'd like to think that, you know, these museums and historic sites that deal with this stuff will become, or will continue to be important if we do have, say, fewer and fewer living veterans of some of these these uh, conflicts. Um, it, it'll be important for us to talk about the realities that those people face, even if they're not there to, to talk about it themselves. Yeah, I, I don't know if this really addresses the comment, but it reminded me of a, of a comment that I received from a Vietnam veteran recently, a, a friend of mine, he's a, we are in the same Legion post, and um, it, it shocked me and, and surprised me when he said it, but he said enough w on us, enough uh, with thanking Vietnam veterans and, and, and doing all of that, um, and it's time to shift our focus to this younger generation, these, these folks who are coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan and and uh, his emotion was that we were um, beginning to overlook them in a lot of the same ways that we, uh, th as a society, had overlooked the Vietnam veterans when they were returning home, which uh, it was an interesting comment. Again, it, uh, he had served uh, in Vietnam in 67, 
and uh, so it was uh, it was it was interesting. But I, I think to 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 give some attention to that younger generation was his overall comment, and I I would agree with that. Uh, but I think we can do both. We've run out of time. We're four minutes over. Okay. The Military History Affinity Group is having a luncheon. I understand that there's still slots available. Our speaker will be the CEO of the Museum of the American Revolution, Scott Stevenson. Uh, check at registration if you still want a ticket. We'll be hanging around for questions. Thank you for waking up early, and enjoy the rest of your day in Philadelphia. Thank you.